Our scripture they're reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And if you're able, I invite you to stand as I read this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Yeah, we really are excited about what the Lord is doing to give us a heart for church planting and for the nations. And the nations are increasingly coming to us. So it is a privilege to steward that really well. Last Sunday, we we talked about our gospel voice. And I tried to make a case for arguing for the necessity of voicing the gospel, the necessity of us as disciples of Jesus voicing the gospel to those who have not yet heard, and our personal responsibility to do that. Today I want to show you how that happened in the ancient church, how the disciples went out and they told other people about Jesus, how multiply really is the story of the church. We've been talking for weeks about this, and it really comes to a culminating uh, point today. Multiply is the story of the church. I want to do a couple, hopefully, simple things today. Start us in Matthew 28 and kind of ground our thinking in the Great Commission. Walk you through the book of Acts at a pretty good clip, the first half of the book of Acts anyway, in kind of a Bible drill format. So we're going to need to move through that, and I'll ask you to engage at that point and, and really keep with me. And then the, the third step will be to kind of land on this question. If multiply was the story of the ancient church, will multiply be the story of our church? That's where we want to go this morning. So look at, look at Matthew 28 with me this morning and, 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 and start with me in, in the Great Commission. Jesus has entrusted the mission of his church to a small, a relatively small group of disciples. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, it says. I want to start, start by drawing your attention to the, to the end of Matthew's gospel, this what thing we call the Great Commission, because it doesn't end like the other gospels do. You know, you remember in Mark, you have demons and serpents and a question about uh, the way that paragraph unfolds, and, and, and then you have the ascension to end that section of Mark. Luke ends also with the ascension, the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus, and then he ends with the ascension. John uh, ends with a campfire on the beach. And John doesn't really say anything about the ascension at the end of the story. He's emphasizing the relationship of Jesus to his apostles who he's entrusting the church to. But Matthew is, Matthew's unique. 
It's like Matthew wants you to hear the very last words of Jesus are these, go and make disciples. Like Matthew is purposefully consolidating. You, you probably picked that up as you're reading in 16 and following just now. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Some of them doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Matthew's consolidated this whole thing at the end to this, to this point. Like, I want... I feel like Matthew's saying to us, I want you to hear in the same way that I did, Matthew, as an apostle, in the same way that I hear the words of Jesus echoing in my mind, I want you to hear them. And so he writes in this way. And we land on these last words. Go make disciples. Noticeably different ending to pronounce the importance of this. Now, if you've studied the text, you probably know this already. There's one verb in this paragraph that's in the imperative form. It's make disciples. The, the rest of the text has going, yes, but that's in the participle form. Teaching, baptize, going, baptizing, and teaching, all participles that kind of hang under the making of disciples. So you might think of them as the means by which you make disciples or maybe more accurately, the natural outflow of making disciples because disciples are willing to be are willing to receive baptism. Disciples are, are willing to receive baptism. They're willing to be taught. They're willing to be gathered into communities called the church. That's what making disciples is. So the force of, of what Jesus is saying here is I am calling you to go make disciples, people who willingly hear, understand, and obey what it means to follow me. People coming under the, what, what is a disciple? People, a disciple is someone who comes under the beautiful life-giving authority of Jesus, the master. That's what a disciple is. And then you'll notice it says all authority. This is a pretty important line. People like to point that out. All authority, Jesus says, has in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this does not mean that Jesus didn't have all authority prior to, I don't think, it means he, had, he didn't have authority prior to the cross and the resurrection. He did. I think what it means is his authority is about to expand in concert with or as, as the gospel goes through the ministry of the disciples. So the authority of Jesus that he has over heaven and earth is about to be felt on earth as disciples go and bring the message all over the world. So, th so he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and take it to every place on the earth and let my authority become real at the street level where people believe and become disciples and follow, right? That's why we call it the Great Commission. We call it the Great Commission because its greatness will extend to every place on the earth. We call it the Great Commission because it's underwritten by the greatness of the authority of Christ who can do this everywhere. Like no other person's name can be preached all over the earth, on all the continents, in every place in the world, and people come to faith only through the name of Jesus. So, so he says, make disciples. All authority is behind it. Gospel authority of Jesus is behind it. And make sure you go to all nations. Make disciples of all nations. And, and you want to point out here as you're working through the text, the all emphasis, all authority, all nations. 
Uh, uh, and then he goes on to say, for all times, right? There's this emphasis. There's this kind of universal thing going on. Um, this is a grand vision for the church. Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples of all men and women everywhere without distinction and to gather them into beautiful multi-ethnic communities called churches. And Jesus entrusted that mission to a relatively small group of disciples. I have often asked myself, what is plan B? <laughs> like, you're, gonna, you're entrusting this to 11 disciples? And then the core that's built out around them? So let's just take it up to 75 to 100. What's plan B? Have you ever thought about that? There is no plan B. Burn the ships and cut the ties. There's no plan B. If the gospel's gonna go on, it's going to be because of the disciples. Now, let me show you what happened. The good news, something amazing happened. So now we're gonna, we're gonna pick up the pace a little bit and start heading into the book of Acts. So turn to Acts, uh, turn to Acts chapter two, and um, let me see if I can summarize uh, chapter one for you. They wait for Jesus. He promised them to wait. He, he um, promised that the Spirit would be sent if they waited. They waited. The Spirit is sent, and the, the Spirit is poured out in, in, in Acts chapter two at this moment called Pentecost, and the church just begins to grow and flourish, and the Spirit is bringing people to faith in Christ. And we pick up in chapter two, verse 42. So I'm, I'm at the end of chapter two. And you've got this gathering of people uh, who have devoted themselves to one another and to the apostles' teaching and, and they're ministering to one another. And, and also, watch this, they're not just interested in each other, they're, they're concerned about others. And verse 47 says, praising God, look at, drop down to the end of the paragraph, verse 47, and having favor with all the people the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. What I want you to see as we step into Acts is the church multiplying exponentially. That's what I wanna kinda of build out for you. So we're just gonna watch for that theme. We're gonna watch for the theme of multiply as we walk through the book of Acts at a pretty good clip here. So, so before we leave chapter two, let me just remind you that the, this new gathering of believers never just concerned about themselves. One author wrote this, they care for one another and those outside of their new community. They're constantly doing that. In the book of Acts, he says, we never see a community simply turned in on itself. They freely and willingly receive new people day by day, those who are being saved. All right, now, that said, let's roll into the book of Acts. If you fast forward to chapter five, verse 42. end of chapter five, and we're looking for this multiply theme. And every day, verse 42, chapter five, and every day in the temple and from house to house, there it is again, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, Christ, uh, that the Christ was Jesus. 6-1, uh, because the chapter breaks a little bit arbitrary here. Six and verse one. Now in these days, while that's all happening, the disciples were increasing in number. So much so that this whole paragraph gets built out 
that the, there, there's a group of, of widows among them who are being neglected because of the massive influx of people. And so they gather this group of godly men together to try to care for and serve them. We think that's the first gathering of deacons to serve the church. Then drop down to verse seven and it says this. This is kind of a summary, this is one of those summary passages that you'll see woven throughout the whole book of Acts. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith, longing and anticipating the Messiah. The number of the disciples was multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This expression uh, is really interesting at the beginning of verse seven. Chapter six, verse seven, the word of God continued to increase. How, how could you say that about the Bible? I, th I thought the Bible was sort of an established, unchanging word of God. Well, it is an established, unchanging word of God, but, but what he means by this is the power of the word, the multiplying, life-giving, regenerating, it's like a seed. Jesus would even compare it to a seed. The promise of God and the word of God and the, and the apostle Peter will later pick up on that and say it's like this thing that comes in, you plant it in the heart of somebody and it, it, it begins to flourish and, and then someone else learns about the gospel and someone else learns about the gospel and this, this, this hostas, are the hostas the thing we multiply and give away to everybody, hostas, lots of hostas? That's what it's like. Just poof and more and more. The word of God increased and, and the disciples are multiplying. All right, go to, ch go to chapter nine. Fast forward to Acts chapter nine, verse 31. So, verse 31, chapter nine, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Holy Spirit a fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, it what? What's the last word? It multiplied. Now why, why, why point out that the church now has peace? The church has peace and was because Saul in the previous section of this chapter had been terrorized, in the, first, the, the previous two, ch two chapters, chapter eight, he'd been terrorizing the church. Saul was not a believer. He was terrorizing the church persecuting the church but then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and now he's on the same team and he's preaching the gospel and so and so Luke in the book of Acts wants you to know what happens is Paul's no longer terrorizing the church and peace settles in and God starts using Saul who is now Paul to preach the gospel and more and more people believe and so the church verse 31 is multiplied Go to chapter 11, verse 19. This is the first uh, established church outside of Jerusalem. The church is spreading. It's getting more uh, influence. It's growing. The church at Antioch. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. They were preaching the gospel to the Jews, but there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who when, came, when they came to Antioch, spoke to Hellenists also, and they were preaching Jesus. And look at this, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And this report came back to the church in Jerusalem, 
And they sent Barnabas to Antioch to help, to train, to disciple. And when he saw the grace of God, he was so glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord and walk with Christ, right? For, by the way, side note, Luke says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Here it is again, end of 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Go down to the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first named followers of Christ, Christians. And, and, and then you drop down to verse 24 of the next chapter, and you just see this simple line, chapter 12, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. What's the story of the book of Acts? It's the church multiplying. That's the story of the book of Acts. The, the church is multiplying. Here, here's the point. The most natural, beautiful, life-giving thing that the church ever does. I think I'm going to stand by this. So you test it with me. I think the most natural, beautiful, and life-giving thing that the church does is to multiply. The gospel goes there into chapter 16. In, in 16, Paul gets this vision to come into Europe, to come into Macedonia. And, and at that point, all bets are off, and the gospel starts to spread like a California wildfire all the way up into continental Europe. The most natural, beautiful, life-giving thing that the church does is to multiply. That is the story of the church. That is why our church is here today. The, the reason our church is, the reason we're here gathered as believers today is that multiply is the life-giving story of the gospel. Back in 1874, a small group of believers gathered for the first time on this little knoll up here where Country Cooking is, above the cave. There's a cave down on this side of Country Cooking, way off the back of it. Uh, comes down Old Cave Spring Lane. If you turn left at the gas station and you go down Old Cave Spring Lane to what we call the McVitie Cut-Through, so right on the, the, the spring will be on your side. The cave and the spring are, there's a spring inside the cave. Okay, <laughs> you guys are like, oh, thanks for telling us that. That's why they call it Cave Spring. So on top of that knoll is where, so that's the, where, the, where we gathered in 1874, a group of believers gathered for the first time there and constituted Cave Spring Baptist Church. Right there kind of where country cooking is. This might explain why we love to eat so much. <laughs> I don't know, just a theory. Like that's the way Baptists roll. That church, in their original constitution, which we have and have, have a lot of continuity in our very language today from the very first constitution of 1874, they decided, let's commit ourselves to one another and to those who've not yet heard. Don't miss that. In our guiding documents that go back to 1874, the gathered believers knew and understood that this gathering is not just for us. It's for us, we are committed to one another, and to those who are 
lost and searching and who have not yet met Christ, to make disciples of those who have not yet heard. The story of the church is multiply. The story of this church, historically, has been multiply. And what I'm asking now, today, 2020, is will it be our story? Will multiply be our story? Will we believe this? Of course we want it to be our story. Who wouldn't want to multiply? I mean, that's a great idea. Who wouldn't want to multiply? Well, I think it's a little bit like what C.S. Lewis said about forgiveness. Everybody thinks forgiveness is a good idea until they have to grant it, right? That's what multiplies like. Of course multiply is a great idea. Just don't take Vince and Kara from me. Just don't take, of course I want to send my children to the mission field. Just don't take, I mean, we should send our children. Just don't take my children. This is how it goes. So what I want to do is remind you that one of the most faith-building things you can ever do is give away your most prized possessions. your most prized relationships, your most prized children, your most prized church planting residents, your most prized, the things you think you need to keep. The gospel calls us to say, oh, whoa, 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 wait, they're, but they're not mine. Lord, they're yours. So I can entrust them to you because this is your kingdom we're building, not my kingdom that you're building, right? One of the most faith-building and rewarding things you will ever do is to give your best, send your best, entrust what God has given to you back to Him. And see what He does to take the gospel to more people so that more people can experience the life-giving grace of Jesus. So I want to close the series with a call to multiply, to multiply new churches. I want to close with a commitment to church planting and, and replanting. So when we talk about replanting, we mean either revitalizing a dying church or replanting a dying church. We'll use those synonymously, okay? So church planting, CP, and replanting or revitalizing, that's the R. So let's call it CPR. We want to be committed to a mission strategy that focuses on CPR. There are lots of good um, you know, there, there are many other elements to our mission strategy. Here at the cave, lots of elements to our mission strategy. We do so many good things throughout the year, and we will keep doing those things. But I think the most important and lasting and effective thing that we can focus on is church planting and revitalizing. Church planting and replanting. I know this sounds provocative, but I, I want to throw it out there as a thesis. The more you study the New Testament, the more you study the expansion of the early church, the more you look at the history of church planting in our denomination and other denominations, the clearer it becomes the single most effective tool to advance the gospel, whether it's here in this state or whether it's in El Salvador or Puerto Rico or in China or wherever it is, the single most effective tool to advance the gospel is planting and replanting healthy churches. I, I want to make a case for that. I, I think the scriptures make a case for that. 
Now, some of you are be like, of course, I'm with you. Okay, I'll get on board with that. Let me, let me try to bring it even closer to home. And church planting may also be the best tool for the internal renewal of existing churches. So let me explain what I mean. If church planting could somehow help, if we could see that church planting and replanting out there is good for us in here, I think it would, it would help us a little bit. So let me, give you, let me give you three reasons for why I think um, church planting is good for the existing church. Three aspects of this. Number one, I mean, we've been around since 1874, so we need, we need to think through this. Number one, new churches bring new ideas. New churches become like the research and, develop, research and development department, like the R&D department. Um, a new church becomes like an R&D department for us so that we get firsthand access to creativity and innovation. Here's an example. Where did we learn Serve Roanoke? We learned Serve, Serve Roanoke from our friends, a church plant partnership in Medford, Massachusetts, in Boston, from, from Redemption Hill. So we go up there for several years and serve at Redemption Hill. We discover Serve Roanoke, we bring it back here, and it's really helping us to connect with our community and serve our community. And then we take Serve Roanoke over to South City Church in Richmond, and they're like, hey, we like this. Yeah, we like it too, we, it wasn't our idea. We got it from them, right? And so you got this creative, innovative means by which we're connecting our community it comes through partnerships with those who are kind of on the field, on the street, doing what we know needs to be done to connect with new people for Christ. So new churches bring new ideas. Secondly, uh, new churches bring future leaders. New churches or church plants, church revitalization efforts, so let's just say there's a church nearby that's dying that we could help and we would resource it with future leaders. Well, future leaders get excited about that because they want to make a difference. Let me give you uh, Tim Keller's explanation of this because I can't improve on it. Here's what Keller says. In older congregations, leaders emphasize things like tradition, tenure, routine, and kinship ties. In new congregations, on the other hand, or church replants or revitalizations, they attract a higher percentage of venturesome people who value creativity and risk and innovation and future orientation. Often older churches tend to box out people who have strong leadership skills and who don't really work well in traditional contexts. That's a good word for the traditional church to hear. That's a good word for us to hear that future leaders are attracted, future leaders are excited when they find out we don't just want to be about here, we also want to be about a renewal over here or a replant over here or sending a team to Blacksburg down there so future leaders are drawn. That's how, that's how we connect with Jenny and Jesse Fury, Xavier and Nasha, Vince and Kara, Tanner and, and Marcia, Zach and Morgan, and on and on the list goes. Future leaders are interested in new work. Here's the third thing. And I think this is probably, like theologically, this is probably the biggest in terms of biblical theological reasons. Planting new churches and replanting dying churches 
is a, is a more compelling vision than just making our corner bigger. Okay, are you with me here? We kind of have to decide, do we want to keep making our corner bigger or do we want to make the kingdom bigger? And, and you know, it's, it's a bit of a paradox and so it's, it's really ironic. It's, it's ironic because sometimes people will say, you know, when I, when I meet them uh, or you, maybe you meet them and you're talking to your friends about where you go to church, oh, that's the big church on the corner. Well, I mean, it looks like a big church from this angle, but honestly, our church boundaries, our property, in the grand scheme of God's world, our little property is a tiny spot in the grand scheme of what God wants to do. So even if we somehow thought to ourselves, you know what, the vision is to build this corner bigger, wouldn't it be kind of ludicrous to think we could build this corner big enough to make a difference for the whole world? Of course, that's crazy. So instead of trying to build our corner bigger, we, what we want to do is we want to be willing to send families. We want to be willing to plant churches. We want to be willing to revitalize churches that are dying around the corner. And you know friends, and you know members of churches that are dying. And we want to put in front of the body of Christ here at this church a massive vision for a powerful kingdom expansion that goes way beyond this corner so that our resources, our time, our money, our energy is given to the, to the expansion of the gospel that's so much bigger than right here. Now that fires me up. I hope it... If that doesn't fire you up, get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Repent and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. We love what the Lord is doing here with our future leaders that we're investing in, that you're partnering with, that you're rubbing shoulders with, that you're serving with. You're getting to know these young families, and then we're sending them. And God is so pleased when we send those we love. Can I say that again? God is so pleased when we send those we love the most. Do you know what he did? Think about this. God sends his only son, the one he loves the most. He freely says, go, go and rescue them. There's no other way. That's the story of the church. And it should be the story of this church. I'm gonna pray and transition us to communion. This prayer is gonna sound familiar. Pastor Allen prayed something like this recently. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna prepare our hearts for communion. Will you join me? Jesus, you boldly declared, I will build my church. We believe that. Jesus, we trust you with that. And thank you for inviting us to join you in this amazing task of making disciples to build your church. We do believe that you want your followers to start a movement of multiplying churches that are made up of a great multitude that nobody could number from any nation, from every single nation rather, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And Jesus, thank you that this does not rest on us, but on the power 
that you victoriously secured at the cross and in the resurrection. So that when we go, we have something to give. Lord, would you let multiply the beautiful, life-giving, multiplying of disciples be the story of this church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.